Welcome to the eighth episode of the Philip Deterrent podcast, where I interviewed Ascanio Vitale, talking about the impact of fossil fuels and non-renewable sources of energy on the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Now, as probably a lot of you know, I am originally Polish, so the impact um, of the war in Eastern Europe has been pretty, uh, pretty profound on me, um, on on my day-to-day -day life, on uh, on what I look at when I open my phone, um, and uh, what I spend a lot of time thinking about. So. This interview with Ascanio, I think, really shed a lot of light on the important aspects that we need to keep in mind uh, about this conflict. And um, and Ascanio, someone who's very knowledgeable around these topics, he's a person with uh, with two engineering degrees, multiple successful businesses, uh, a big NGO career. Also, I think had some very very good feedback on um, on the on the influence of of energy uh, in this conflict. So. Um, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think it's very insightful and we'll definitely have Escanio back on the podcast many, many more times in the future. Uh, yeah, so thanks for listening and uh, hope to see you soon. I'll let you start off. Tell us all about yourself. What do you do and uh, why did you come here to uh, to chat with me? Sure. Uh, my story is a little bit complex, so I'll try to, to make it really short. Um, I've got two degrees in engineering and I've dedicated all my life to the environmental cause since I was a kid. And then I volunteered for many NGOs, environmental NGOs, mainly Greenpeace, in which I literally grown up uh, inside the, the organization. I joined it when I was 15. And uh, as soon as I got my second degree in 2001, I joined it professionally and I became the energy and climate campaigner for them for Greenpeace Italy. Then I worked as a um, climate campaigner for WWF Italy as well. I've been covering the position of European um, responsible for the renewable energy of WWF at Brussels. And then in 2006, I opened my own um, consultancy company. It's called Stop CO2. And we do uh, improvement path on sustainability for companies as well as energy efficient buildings. Um, in 2014, I also opened a spin-off called Flightzen, which developed uh, an award-winning uh, uh, platform for the calculation of carbon footprint for the commercial aviation. And I've been sitting for six years on uh, on the board of a charity called Population Matters that deals with overpopulation and sustainability. So I've got a very wide and multidisciplinary approach on sustainability, as you can imagine. Yes, that's amazing. So I, I have two questions and they're very similar. First of all, why are you here with us today? Well, we, we met, we, we had a chat, and uh, I hope that I can uh, discuss about interesting things for your followers, that we can touch uh, um, topics on the environment, maybe not just with this podcast, but many others, and with an independent view, because I'm used to the ivory tower of, of Greenpeace and many other NGOs to analyze things independently, uh, far from any political or or commercial bound. So I I, I love to to keep my my mind independent and to approach uh, to have a very upright approach on sustainability. Amazing stuff. So as I said, there's two of these questions. So everything you described before, you clearly have a very accomplished career. I think it's a great idea to have such a vast engineering background. You know, I think we ever want to go after anything. I really think engineering is such a great thing to go to college for compared to many other things. Um, but tell me why, why did you do this? Why did you join Greenpeace so quickly? What is, why did you pursue this career? Like there's so many other things that you could do, which are probably much more conventional and easier. So what, what pushed you in this direction? 
Uh, it's kind of a series of cofactors because it's never one reason why you do something in your life. I mean, generally not something so profound. Uh, my, my choice started when I was a kid because I started reading uh, on science books about the, the demographic explosion and the situation about uh, the planet and how we were. Actually, I mean, I was born in 1975, which was the beginning of a transition from the planet in actually regarding rich countries, industrialist countries, and I was, I'm coming from Italy, which is one of them, where we sort of moved from a sustainable use of our resources to having an ecological footprint that goes far beyond the sustainability. And this is what we've been doing, and the impact has been growing so far so at levels that uh, industrialized countries nowadays consume as much as uh, three worlds if the whole planet used the same uh, consumption model. Of course, the average, it averages out with, with poor countries and developing countries. So the average right now, it's 1.7 planets, which is still an overshoot in uh, around July, which means that we, about seven months every year, we use the bioavailability of our planet and the, re the remaining five months, we actually borrow from the future what we are using in terms of uh, natural resources. God damn. <laughs> well, that, that's a, and this that's is a why we, we talk about sustainability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, that's a really great way to, to phrase it. I think you should do a lot of work around. I don't know how many you probably already do, but I think a lot of people should hear this, like exactly what you're saying, that we are like overusing our planet <laughs> right now and we still are increasing our population and naturally reducing the amount of energy that we get from fossil fuels. Um, and um, and yeah, so again, this actually ties us perfectly in, 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 into our main topic, right? So um, as I did in the introduction for all of you guys before this podcast started, we are today with Ascanio going to talk about the impact of fossil fuels and dependency on, on let's say, non-sustainable finite energy and how that impacts uh, global conflicts. This podcast is recorded during the time of the Russian-Ukrainian war. This is about day nine, I believe, uh, either day eight or nine, uh, if you're watching this in, in the future. So can you explain to us, in your view, how much of an impact have had fossil fuels had on this conflict? Uh, and what is the what is the information or the sources that you have to back this, right? I know a bit about it also, uh, but I'm, I'm very interested in, in all that you have to say on it. Sure. Uh, I mean, um, again, the, the, the reality is much more complex than it can be you know, summarized in one or two points. But uh, my take on this on this war, on this sad war, is, uh, is the same that I had on many other wars. I mean, there's a, 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 an evaluation given by the United Nations Environmental Programme, the UNEP, that states that historically uh, about at least 40% of the wars that historically have happened around the world have been based on uh, natural resources and mainly on fossil fuels uh, mm -hmm. supply. And I, I remember really well because I've been campaigning on that on the Iraqi war, not only the first one in 1990, but the second one in 2003, and then the war in Afghanistan as well, they have been covered by the excuse of many other reasons. And for example, one of them in uh, regarding the Ukraine war is the nostalgic uh, uh, aims of uh, Putin of reestablishing the, the, the borders of the old USSR. 
but uh, you know and the nato as well the nato expansion is one other cofactor which is true in a sense because we we do have i mean wars that never start with the responsibility of one country they always start with both sides responsibilities i mean 99% of the times and uh, in this uh, in this particular situation i mean putin could have uh, invaded uh, lithuania or estonia or latvia uh, years ago when they joined uh, the nato why, whereas uh, ukraine is still uh, was still discussing whether to join it or not so the the actual truth that i take on this on this kind of invasion is that ukraine is one of the richest country of the old ussr that are not anymore part of the of, of russia um ukraine is the actually the first country in europe on the Euro european uh, territory that uh, owns the highest amount of uranium and Russia is still relying a lot on nuclear fuel, nuclear, nuclear energy. We, there's a huge discussion about how nuclear energy is sustainable or not, and we can do another entire podcast out of it. But let's mm -hmm. just uh, bear in mind that uh, when, when you need uranium, which uranium is a, a limited resource as well as fossil fuels, it's not a renewable one. So you need uh, to find it, and Ukraine is the best and the closest uh, place where um, uh, Russia can, can actually supply it um as well uh, titanium as well as uh, wheat and many other resources and also it's uh, i believe it's the tenth in the world and the fourth in europe uh, regarding fossil fuels oil and gas uh, mainly and coal yes. as well but mainly oil and mm -hmm. gas and let's not forget that since the the fall of um, of the ussr in uh, between 1988 and 1991 uh, russia has been facing a huge uh, economical crisis and they in its industrial system has never recovered fully so right now russia is comparable to a gas pump for the rest of the world for asia and mainly for europe um, it exports mm -hmm. around 160 billion dollars of uh, fossil resources mainly it's um, gas and oil it's 100 billion more or less of gas and 60 billions in oil and a little bit of coal so Nowadays, the economy in Russia holds on this kind of exchanges. And that's why as soon as uh, Putin, I believe even before the, the, the real start of the war, Putin has been uh, um, trading with, uh, with Pakistan and China, uh, new contracts for new gas ducts, new pipelines that, uh, to, to sell supplies to the Asian market and to increase the trading of gas within uh, the Asian market in order to compensate whatever could have happened with Europe in case of the, the beginning of the war. And we don't have to forget that uh, with, regardless of the sanction that we are applying right now as Europe towards Russia, um, we are still supplying them with around $100 billion a year in gas supplies. So 45% uh, of the gas used in Europe, and I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm talking from London, I'm speaking from London, and UK has been moving away from Russian supplies. We are now dependent about 3% of Russian supplies, but there is still a lot of dependence on uh, Russian capitals. For example, the new nuclear plant in Point, uh, the reactor C that is in construction in, in England, depends on about $2 billion, 2 billion pounds of Russian money. And uh, in Europe, uh, Ireland, Greece, Italy, Spain, uh, Germany are a lot um, uh, depending on, on, the, on the Russian gas. So there's a sort of a strange relationship between uh, a, a federation of countries that are declaring sanctions against a, against a country 
but at the same time, they are financing a lot. I mean, the, the military expense of Russia is around $62 billion a year, which is less than a tenth of what the U.S. spend. But in, in regarding the percentage of the total GDP, it's actually higher than, than the U.S. U.S. spend around 3.2%. Russia spends about 3.9% in military expenses. And these military expenses are fully paid by Europe, just Europe only in gas supplies. So Germany, for example, as soon as the, the war started, they started discussing about whether the Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that has been just finished a few years ago, has been completed. I believe it was 2016. I'm not sure I've got the figure somewhere here, but in my, in my notes, but um, it's been recently uh, uh, finished and uh, but the certification process has not been com concluded. So the actual gas is not flowing in this, uh, this pipeline and uh, Chancellor Schultz decided not to, to, to hold the certification process. So no gas is actually being bought through this pipeline, but through many other pipelines passing through Ukraine as well, uh, Europe is buying a lot of gas. And in case Russia decides to close the tap and interrupt the, the, gas, the gas supplies, this could become a huge crisis uh, energy-wise for Europe. So mm -hmm. right now we've been discussing in the past decade of how to move from fossil fuels to, to a total green transition towards a 2050 target of being completely energy, at least 80, per, I mean, it's 100% electricity uh, on renew, based on renewables and around 80% of total primary energy uh, transition towards uh, renewable energies. So it's uh, sort of a, a first step towards a complete energy independence and basing our supplies on, on renewables. And right now we are actually on the verge of a, of a big decision. So we need to understand whether engaging in a war or whether spending money to actually accelerate this process and uh, pointing towards a, a situation that can actually enable a discussion with Russia and the interruption of this war rather than actually escalating it. Wow. Well, that, that was, Sorry, so that was really complex. amazing information. <laughs> that was actually really, really, really fantastic. So uh, maybe just to add from the information that I have around this, and maybe you, you can get some uh, some feedback on it. So do you know much about like the, the oil fields apparently around uh, Crimea within, within the Black Sea? Um, so that's apparently, you know, when, when Crimea was annexed, that was supposed to be, you know, the real reason, you know, for, for, uh, for that to happen. Uh, so do you know much, much about, let's say the, the Black Sea situation in terms of oil? Yes, there. Um, I mean, I, I don't honestly know the percentage of oil wells and gas wells that you can find in Crimea with respect to the rest of the Ukrainian territory. Honestly, I don't know the situation mm -hmm. that, in de that much in detail. What I can tell you is that most of this, uh, this oil field and gas field are one of the reasons why Russia has been aiming to Ukraine rather than invading other territory of the, of the former USSR, as I, as I said before. And taking into consideration that Russia is lagging uh, towards the, the net zero transition, they're still depending a lot out of these resources. So it's not only just about ensuring a supply that can keep the Russian economy alive and trading these gas supplies towards the Asian market, it's also about uh, holding the energy system, of the national energy system as well, which is still um, strongly dependent on, on gas and oil. So. 
it's been the same reason why uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq and uh, and why Iraq invaded Kuwait. And as I told you, the the reason of many other wars, the, the recent Libyan wars, for example, in, in North in, in North Africa, uh, by the U.S. And, and France, that was also for ensuring gas supplies because we, mm-hmm. as Europe, we buy a lot from North Africa, as well. Wow! So it seems that all. Well, I think what you said at the start, like nearly all conflicts around this planet are somehow related to energy. So do, do you agree with that? Yes, uh, I, I agree with the estimate of UNEP. And actually, I believe that they're, they're, they've been very conservative because, of course, sometimes it's also a matter of politics on how much you can decide whether that war, the main reason was fossil fuel or it was a political reason about, mm-hmm. you know, the independence of a country or... or whatever other co-factors are insisting on it. And you will never have, let's say, the, the full honest view of someone like Putin. Like it, it would be completely anti-strategic for him to be like, to come and, and tell us, you know, exactly what he thinks, you know, about, about this whole thing. Like, and, or, and we can't expect that of our leaders either. You know, I don't think uh, any leader in the world will tell anybody exactly 100% of everything that they're doing, you know, because there's, there's opposition, you know, there's like, you don't, they don't want the other nation to know or maybe somebody in, inside the nation that would like be favorable with the other nation so this is all like a strategic thing and i really think i think something i really want to touch on because a lot of people you know and what on the subject of let's say misinformation or you know people having views on one end and people having views on another end and they they all just you know read the narrative of one side and i think there's a lot of people who just prefer to be the anti-mainstream narrative because it makes them feel good about themselves there's a lot of those people and i know some of them and this is like they will they will shift immediately to the anti-mainstream now what you were saying i i want to solve this problem because this is a problem that they have you know this is a problem for the world right what you what you're describing your views about this conflict are based on something that no side actually controls, which is how much oil is in which territory? How can we convince people to think like you? I would put myself in those people as well, because I also think this way. When I make a decision about something, I try to look at like, rather than what this side and this side saying, just kind of have a good overview of, let's say the geography and, and, and the economy and how it works and understanding energy and how important that is for countries. How, in your opinion, do you think you can convince people to think like like you're thinking right now? Well, uh, it, the the official reason why Putin is saying that he's invading Ukraine is to free uh, the former Russian territories that he claims to 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 depend on to to, to be to belong to Russia, which, in an historic sense, they actually belong more rather more to Turkey than to Russia, because Russia has been mm-hmm. occupying them for 150 years and Turkey for 300 years. So it's quite a, a very complex situation when it comes yeah. to for this kind of discussions. Israel as well, for example, Palestine yes. and Israel. Mm-hmm. It's, exact it's such thing. a complicated thing, and I'm not a political expert, I'm not a war analyst, and I, I really want to point out that this is my personal opinion about it. So it's it's kind of a limited approach on someone who deals mainly with energy, and I know the, the repercussion of energy issues on, on wars. So again, it's just one of the many reasons. But if it were, if it were to be the only reason of the main reason, that it doesn't explain why he's attacking from Belarus uh, and from the northern side of uh, of Ukraine, 
and is moving toward Kiev and the and the in the western borders of uh, of Ukraine. He seems to to be wanting invading the whole national country rather than just the the Donbas uh, and the other uh, you know pre previous yes exactly. So uh, there's a news about this morning of the Zaporizhia. Uh, I'm I, I might yes. be butchering the name, uh, which is the biggest. Nuclear nuclear plant in Europe, and it provides about twenty percent of the electricity in, uh, in Ukraine only. Um, the fact that it's pointing to towards this kind of nuclear facilities is not just a tactic uh, choice in order to interrupt the energy uh, supplies and also you know to control them in order to control the occupation of the country, but it's also of course to to occupy a, a strategic place. It's not just a tactical thing, it's a strategic as well, because if he wants to bring Russia again to be a, an industrial power, not just a, a, an oil and gas suppliers for the rest of the world, he has to ensure uh, more energy capacity. And uh, what what's better than invading a country that has them already at their disposal instead of uh, investing and building new ones? Even more right now that uh, newer technologies are in, uh, in, uh, in the nuclear in the nuclear field require uh, tens of years before completing a, a plant. So it's much quicker to invade a country and to, to get its own uh, energy supplies and uh, readily available. Yeah. So, yeah. so now bring this very much down to, let's say, even the viewers, right? So anybody listening, how do you think, how should we expect the current energy crisis with Russia to impact our lives? I've already seen a bit of these impacts starting in Ireland for my brother recently. The, the prices of, of gas at the station went up by 20 cents, which is insane, you know, when <laughs> per liter, you know, so it is crazy stuff. So can you tell me what should people expect uh, within the next weeks, within the next months, and then within the next years, if you want to project that far, but it's up to you. Yes, there's uh, the European marketing gas is mainly, the, the main reference is the TTF, uh, the future index of uh, gas contracts in Amsterdam, um, as well as for oil is the Brent, for example. And the Brent has been overtaking the, the psychological figure of $100 uh, per barrel, which uh, it hasn't been doing for at least uh, four or five years, if I remember well. So it's been a long time since it went beyond uh, the $100 per barrel. The gas has been exchanged by, for $120 per metric, uh, metric uh, cube. And that's a lot compared to what before was the level of, of gas. It's been almost tripling before the, the, in, in a few months. And that was just even before the, 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 the war started, because it was just the tension building up at the Ukraine border that uh, started uh, assigning uh, contracts that were much more expensive than, than before on gas. So the gas supply and the gas prices, I don't think that they're gonna go down very quickly in the next futures. Uh, actually, I, I forecast a, a continuous increase of price as the world continues. And even if the worst uh, ends very quickly, which I hope in, in absolute terms, uh, I don't think that it will affect the, the cost of, uh, of uh, gas supplies in the, in the short term. So we have to get ready of a future where gas uh, is a source that we already know it's not sustainable and we had to get rid of it. But the plans and the speed uh, by which we wanted to get rid of are definitely slower than the one that we should adopt. So right now, 
the first country who actually accelerated their transition towards uh, getting rid of, uh, of gas has been Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. They said that they want to reach 100% renewable electricity by 2035. Uh, the previous uh, target was 2040, and it was still um, a target that was much before the rest of the European countries. So uh, mm -hmm. all Europe is aiming to reach about 100% uh, of renewable electricity in 2050, which uh, compares to 80% of the reduction of, uh, of um, carbon emissions. Uh, don't forget that when we talk about electricity right now, uh, we're talking about 25% of the total energy that we use in a country because 75% mm -hmm. is heat and it's the energy used mainly in uh, transport, in um, cars, in planes, in ships, uh, as well as industrial processes uh, to build cement and, um, and many other manufacturing processes. So in order to, to complete this transition, it's not just about turning electricity into green energy, but it's also about changing the way we actually produce and consume energy in our industrial industrial system. So that's the, the main challenge. And it can be reached by accelerating the way we produce energy, because if we if we start relying on, on renewable energies instead of oil and gas, and I would add nuclear energies as well for other reasons than the pure carbon emissions. But that, again, that's a topic for an entire other podcast. It's quite, <laughs> yeah. quite complicated to get into that. But if we do that with the surplus, we can actually start producing green hydrogen. And green hydrogen is one of the main sources that will help the, the total transition where we can substitute the gas with hydrogen. So where the sector, the so-called hard to abate sectors, which is the steel industry, the cement industry, or aviation, for example, or even shipping, uh, those industry will rely on combustion engines and uh, endothermic uh, engines and, and technologies and thermoelectric techno technologies. So they will need a, a direct uh, uh, substitution of, of gas and oil and hydrogen is the best uh, candidate to do that with other uh, biofuels and ammonia, but it's, uh, it's non-toxic, it's easy to, to produce and very clean to produce. Right now it's very expensive. So the, the problem is to actually engage the economy of scale of this kind of a production system, mm -hmm. but that can be only triggered by investing a lot in renewable energy. And mm -hmm. so far, renewable energies have been growing, uh, not in Italy, they, in the last three or four years, we actually been flattening out. But with the new Green Deal by the von der Leyen um, uh, Commission president, uh, we're actually aiming towards an acceleration on that, but we can do more. Uh, we actually, we can do three times as much as the actual plans are. Uh, to build a power plant, it takes 12 to 15 years. To build the same capacity with uh, solar panels, uh, energy storage and wind energy, it takes less than three years. And if we did it with the right amount of uh, investment, we can even reach 24 months to, to do exactly the same amount of energy produced with renewable energies. So the time has come to actually start a transition that can bring Europe, and I'm talking about the main energy consumer, which right now are Southern Europe countries, Southern European countries, Germany and Ireland, those countries need to switch, to switch to wind energy and to solar PV energy, which are the cheapest one right now at the moment among all energy sources. Even energy um, storage is becoming to, to be, to, 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 it, it's becoming to be as cheap as, um, as gas and, uh, and wind energy. So right mm -hmm. now 
the cost of PV uh, plus four hours of storage is about $40 per megawatt hours. Um, mm -hmm. Wind energy ranges between 30 to $60 per megawatt hours whether regarding the technology, whether it's onshore or offshore floating or fixed technologies. And uh, so that there is a lot that we, we must do. And uh, the main problems to, to face is not only the amount of money, private and public, that has to be invested, but it's also how we adapt to these new technologies. So it's about discussing with the community the occupation of soil of this kind of uh, systems because it's uh, distributed energy production. So it's not anymore big, huge coal plant or nuclear plant placed somewhere away from urban centers, but it's uh, cent uh, production systems that get closer to the, to the use points. So we're gonna start seeing close to our uh, urban centers, wind, uh, wind energy systems and in our cities, solar panels that can be distributed over, um, you know, in the industrial warehouses as well as private residential houses. So this mm -hmm. is a, a new way of conceiving how we produce energy. And it's a, a much more democratic one because everyone can produce it even at home. Wow. Uh, you, again, you, you opened so many, so many bubbles in my head. Like there's so many things to touch on and talk about, but I want to bring it back to the previous question just so we can close that. And then I want to talk about the decentralization of energy production, because that, that's a, that's a big one. So as you, you, you mentioned, you, you don't think, so as your, your standard person living in Ireland uh, or, or England, anywhere in the UK or France, Germany, let's say in the EU, right? With the current conflict going on, do you predict, like, what's your, what's your prediction? If you were to tell these people, what can they expect in terms of how much of an impact on their life cutting out from Russia will have. So if you were to just give them like, okay, what can they expect just to, to close this? Yeah, well, regarding the war, there's nothing that we can do on the short term energy wise because this transition, as I told you, can be accelerated as, as much as reducing by half our dependence to, to Russian gas in uh, six to 12 months. And mm -hmm. uh, therefore, within two or three years, we might be able to if we do things really well, we might be able to reduce as uh, to almost nothing our dependence to, to Russian gas. There is also dependent on oil. Uh, Germany, for example, uh, imports 98% of the oil they consume. So there's a lot that has to be done. So on the short term, the, the only solution for the world, for the tension on the eastern side of Europe, uh, can be solved only diplomatically and by understanding the reason of both sides and, and starting to actually sit down. I mean, wars can be only fought. There's mm -hmm. nothing in history that teaches us that wars have been solving the tensions between the conflicts between two countries. Uh, mm -hmm. Wars have been fought and then diplomacy has been taken, uh, taken off and uh, finally finding a solutions and, and writing uh, treaties. So what we, we have to do is learning from our past mistakes uh, for once and show that humanity can actually learn from past mistakes and uh, get over the, the war and start discussing diplomatically since the beginning the reasons of both sides. So Europe should play a major role out of it because we've got the responsibility of uh, of you know being part and I mean Ukraine is even asking now to, to join the European Union so it's it's uh, bringing on the discussion on uh, on over all the other member states so we mm -hmm. we must take a stand we must do a dip dip diplomatic effort to stop this war we haven't been doing much be when the tension was uh, was rising 
So we, we need to do it now. And we need to do it not only for the Ukrainian people. If I was to say, and well, uh, maybe some people will be will have some kind of reaction to this, but I, I, I want to say it. I think a, and I, a good idea would be to 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 split Ukraine potentially. Like to like, I think like Luhansk, uh, Donetsk, right? I, I think that the really pro really Russian influence east of Ukraine could potentially be you know given to Russia, and then the West automatically in the EU, automatically within NATO just to have some kind of agreement. That's just an idea just to put out there. Maybe some people will think about it, probably won't get anywhere. But I think, again, I'm not saying this is perfect in any way. I, I'm, I'm just giving uh, just giving my view, right? Uh, but anyway, so. It's a difficult again, topic. I mean, mm -hmm. if I think about Israel and Palestine, for example, mm -hmm. I believe that the best solution would have been there, for, for, for example, to have uh, a sort of an international um, uh, control on the hot uh, hot places like Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, exactly. Instead of giving exactly. it to one side of the other one, just putting international community getting getting over them. Exactly what and I think. <laughs> that could happen in a sense. I mean, in a different, yeah. completely different context, but it could happen in Ukraine because splitting between Russia and Ukraine wouldn't solve the situation. Actually, the bombing has been going on since 2014 between uh, after the the second Minsk uh, agreement. So war has never stopped in some areas of Ukraine. So splitting it into parts, I don't think will actually end the, the, the bombing and actually the violence. What we should do is actually having someone else, a third party getting part of the discussion and the, and the control of the area, which is quite a very complex political thing to, 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 to face because and, and who's it, it even going to be the third party? Like, everyone's already taken a side. <laughs> like, who are you going to get to be the, the standard? Like, who's neutral here? Like, at the end of the day, US and, uh, you know, NATO and the West has so many allies and uh, Russia has so many allies, right? Like, China is kind of seems to be more Russia than, than, than the West, but not really that far, you know? So it's very hard to pick a country that could, that could, that could be here in, in the middle. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's a whole other tangent. We could have a whole topic just, just about our opinions on the war. But going back to, going back to uh, what I was asking, I, I want to ask, you know, a financial question, right? So um, do your day-to-day your -day Europeans, how much will we pay for, and by the way, this is not important to me. I don't even drive a car. So just, I'm not being like, oh, how much am I going to lose in the Ukraine-Russia war? Not at all. And I, I hope to lose as much as I have to in order to stop it. But how much can we expect, let's say, the impact of, uh, of, of how much it costs to fuel your house, electricity, of how much it costs to fuel your car, if you have a, a nice car, ice, so internal combustion engine, not nice. Um, so what is... Um, what do you expect? So you, you said it will take about 12 months to get off this, right? So within this, within this year, what can we expect? Yeah, 12 months uh, to, to get rid of half of the dependence on Russian gas. Uh, to, to get rid completely of, uh, of uh, fossil fuel dependency will take a little bit more. But yeah, what we can expect for sure is that uh, it's already happening. I mean, in Italy, uh, for example, but it's happening all over Europe, and as I told you, it's uh, it's actually a generalized thing happening all over the world. Even in the, in the U.S., investing in wind energy in Texas, for example, has a 12% return on investment. So it's one of the best way of investing money. Uh, the International Energy Agency 
uh, before this, uh, this actually the, the, the Ukraine war uh, stated that 96% of the total capacity that, of energy plants that will be installed all over the world in the next five years is going to be renewable because renewable energy is the cheapest way of producing energy. So as we move towards renewable energy production, the cost of electricity is going to get lower. Nowadays mm-hmm. in Italy, the, and, and again, it's more or less the average that w- what's happening in Europe, the cost of renewable energy is about three times cheaper than fossil fuel and the average mix of, of the nation. So when uh, companies sell energy to the, to the state, they actually sell it to the price of the average cost of energy and they give back to the government about two thirds of what they're, uh, what they're getting because mm-hmm. the real uh, price of their energy is three times less. It's, uh, it's two, two third uh, smaller. So uh, what we can expect is that the price of en- electricity is going to get lower while the price of gas is going to increase. And this is a message for everyone who's thinking about retrofitting his house, buying a car, or even uh, you know, uh, improving the energy bill of their company they must move towards the electrification of their systems. So in a house, for example, it's getting rid of a gas boiler and installing a heat pump. Uh, It's installing PV panels on on the roof with a battery so that you actually are investing a little bit of money at the beginning. And I know that it's difficult in absence of an incentive by the government, but it's when, when you invest in renewable energy, it's about buying the energy supply for your next 30 years at the discounted price altogether. So you're spending a lot of money at the beginning, but you're actually investing in um, halving your, your, your energy bill and ensuring your supply of electricity, even if the grid doesn't supply you with, uh, with the electricity. Climate change is actually affecting energy production. In some states, uh, in Europe a little bit less, but more in the United States and in, in Africa and Asia, um, sometimes, but even in Italy, it has happened when uh, drafts, for example, they take out the, the water supply for, for agriculture and for uh, fresh water to, to drink. They take out water also for the power plants, for thermoelectric power plants or for hydroelectric power plants. For example, Italy relies a lot on um, the glacier on the Alps. And as they're retreating, there's less water to make the hydroelectric plants work. So the production is decreasing. And sometimes during the summer, we can have blackouts. If you get electricity from a PV panel and a battery, you don't even have to care about blackouts. Apart from the cost of electricity, you've got a reliable supply of electricity in your house. So Mm -hmm. it's about changing your gas hubs into induction um, um, cookers. And these induction cookers actually save you money. They save you about uh, a third of what you pay in terms of gas to cook in your house. So there's a lot of small transitions to be made. Electric cars, they cost about 2 to 2.5 times uh, a gas car, but the, the investment is paid back in function of how much, how many kilometers a year you do. But in an average consumption in a, uh, of a city car with a few, uh, you know, a few holidays from time to time out of uh, the urban center, you pay back your electric car in around uh, four or five years. So. It's something that, of course, right now it can be done by middle class or upper middle class. And whoever has a low wage, it's, it's, it becomes more difficult to be done on a short term. But that's where the government has to uh, you know, publish the right policy of incentive and, and make it possible for everyone to do it. Okay, so uh, you, just, you brought up a, 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 an awesome idea. 
tell me, I'll ask you live on on, the, on air. Would you like, you can do it every month or every two months, we could have a really deep engineering discussion on this podcast to understand a lot of these problems. You know why? Because there's so much nonsense out there, right? And it's very hard to verify for someone who is not an engineer. For example, you started to talk about electric cars, right? And now there's this whole <laughs> misinformation counterculture like movement somehow. I think people just want to disagree and somehow blame the government for being some kind of evil conspiracy on how uh, basically, you know, lithium ion batteries, you know, make the whole uh, electric car less renewable than than an ice car. I don't believe this myself, but this is like a, a I don't feel like I'm skilled enough or knowledgeable enough to counter this properly. So it would be amazing that we, you know, I'll, I'll bring up these things, which I think, you know, like potential nonsense. And then we, we can talk about here here for an hour and we could potentially solve it. So first of all, are you open to doing this? Sure, I'd be happy to. And uh, talking about electric cars, it's, uh, it's a huge topic. As, again, it's quite difficult to, put everything right now because people yes. are going to start bleeding by their ears yeah. if we have to talk about all <laughs> things at the same time but yeah there are actually interesting and independent studies that show that uh, electric cars are actually more uh, more sustainable than uh, than than gas cars of course let's you know let's postpone the, the discussion in depth from yes. another time but mm -hmm. just very quickly let's keep in mind that we shouldn't think about doing a transition for the 2.2 billion vehicles that are around the world from gas powered gasoline to electric um, to electric engines because that's unsustainable we while we do the transition we have to change our consumption paradigms mm -hmm. and uh, you are younger than me and maybe a lot of people that are listening right now to this podcast they will have to live in a world where the car is not anymore a product but it becomes a service so yes. you don't actually own anymore a car apart from a certain category of people like you know people who work with the car on a daily basis like doctors going to their patients mm -hmm. or you know delivering companies and so on but the usual the average car is parked 95 percent of the time you, yes. you park it down your house then you move to the office or to your workplace and then you park it again and then you use it only a few times uh, every every day but it's five percent of the time that it's been used so if you think okay. about a self-driving car for example as uh, the technology will be introduced it will become very easy not to own a car but just to summon it with your with your smartphone Tesla, your robo taxi. Your <laughs> and, yeah, you don't even have to work about to worry about the parking so that's the new way of actually changing uh using one car instead of 15 on the road if you use it as a service instead of a product Ah, uh, there's i could talk about an hour about a ton like i'm a big fan of tesla and tesla investor and you know i'm a big you know i'm very very bullish on on all the all the things that you're talking about and by the way i know conspiracy theories against them so uh, for another time that's for for another time right but uh so slowly running out of battery on the ipad unfortunately but i would like to while we still have a, a moment i want to ask one very important question about everything you've talked about so far so you seem like it's either the people in government are just not as smart as you are or there's something holding them back like they probably have advisors similarly like have similar knowledge to you right uh they, they're probably not as good as engineering as you but what is holding them back from making these decisions i have a lot of theories but i want to hear your view on it that's the million dollar question and i've been asked this question all my life and the answer has always been the same and i've been experiencing in uh, in first person i mean i've been witnessing with my own eyes 
when you go to the European Commission, when you have to deal with the national government, I dealt with the Italian government mainly, and I've seen what is the difference between being part of an environmental uh, lobby, which is mainly NGOs and uh, laboratories and independent centers that publish reports and they have to bring them to a politician to be read. And uh, generally the amount of money that is, that is available to these organizations is less than a tenth or even a hundredth of what the oil and gas industry has at its disposal. So when, when we actually focus on the report, we devote all our money towards having an independent and uh, report full of facts. But then between that and convincing a politician, there's a huge ocean in between because you have to make it appealing. You have to do an executive summary because politicians never re read the whole report that you bring them because it's a technical report. So you need to produce the material. You need to be present all the time. And this is a cost in terms of time and resource that not all organizations have. In, mm -hmm. in, uh, instead, the oil and gas industry, for example, at the COP26, the biggest delegation at all, in, in the absolute way, regardless whether it was a government or an organization, the biggest lobby group present at the COP26, which is the yearly, uh, the COP is the yearly meeting of uh, all, the, all the countries in the world I'm talking about the international geopolitics on climate change, it was belonging to the oil and gas industry. So I was about to say it. Got, <laughs> so when a politician receives uh, a laminated report with mm -hmm. uh, a lot of gadgets and you know promises that you're going to get a lot of votes if you follow me because I represent thousands of workers, we have billions of dollars of profit every year. Uh, you know, these kind of things, mainly politicians are not that smart sometimes or they're not that educated. They, they haven't got the background to actually weigh the two sources or which is the most independent and most reliable they see what is fancier they see whoever whoever is more present and convince them continuously insisting that this is the right choice so regardless whether it's a legal thing or illegal because sometimes there are illegal um, practices that oil and gas industry have been uh, taking in the past and they have been demonstrated publicly i'm not talking about uh, conspiracy theory uh, theory. Um, so there, yes. and there is a licit and an illicit way of, of uh, pushing on a petition. But the result is that the the amount of firepower of the oil and gas industry is much higher than. Hey, we are strobe again. <laughs> it's much higher than the renewable and the, and the environmental organizations. You're so right. I mean, like this is lobbying and uh, short-term thinking on the micro level and not making it in the macro level because it's a politician making the decision. It's a whole nother podcast that, that we can talk about. I think perfect timing with this slide. I have 1% of iPad battery as well. So let's end it here. It's been an absolute pleasure, really. And I hope to have you here multiple, multiple times. We can discuss the frequency, but it's been very valuable for me. I'll probably watch this on my own after just to, to learn from all that you said again. And then we'll go from there. But I'm going to have to cut it now because this might die and might get deleted. Okay. No problem. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Thank ciao, you. ciao. Goodbye.